Welcome on to The Backstretch. I'm Heather Williams, and I'm on vacation this week, technically, so I'm not in Bristol to talk with Chris. But I did think it might be fun to share a previous interview I did earlier this year about a story that's made headlines in the last couple of weeks. The Scene Vault podcast says that they have found the man known as L.W. Wright, a guy who basically conned his way onto the racetrack in Talladega. 40 years ago. Had you ever been to Talladega before? Never seen the track. What do you remember about pulling in? I remember pulling pulling into infield that day and standing at the end of the track and looking down it. And I looked over at my brother and I said, Lord, have mercy. Ain't no way. I did a story on LW earlier in the year and talked to a man named Ken Martin who fancies himself a NASCAR historian and I've talked to Ken on many stories. He knows more about NASCAR than probably anyone on the planet. He works for he works for the sanctioning body now as the senior manager of archive and development. And he shared a lot of cool information about LW and what he knows about what went down. Now, I also have an interview coming up with Alex Bowman, so that will be fun. As for this week in Darlington, I know everybody is talking about the move that Joey Logano made on William Byron in the closing laps. Yes, it looked dirty. No, I don't think it was that dirty. No, I don't think it's any different than what Dale Earnhardt Sr. used to do in his day. We all remember I didn't mean to wreck him. I just meant to rattle his cage. I really don't think that Joey Logano meant to wreck William Byron. I talked to Joey after the race at Martinsville with a group of media and the post-race interviews, and he tried to make that same move on Byron at Martinsville, but couldn't bump him out of the way because he said he didn't hit him hard enough, that with these newer cars, you have to hit someone so much harder to get them out of the way, and he said if he was in the position again, he would hit him harder this time. Well, he definitely hit William harder, and he definitely moved him out of the way. He probably just hit him a little too hard. There's a lot of things we have to learn about these new cars and finding that balance of how hard to hit someone, how fast you can approach someone, how fast you can hit the corner. All of those things are going to be a learning curve. So I know a lot of people are mad at Joey. I know a lot of people think that William Byron's a crybaby. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. I don't think that Joey meant to hit him. I think that William was actually really offended by the way Joey hit him because Admittedly, with Logano, those two had never had trouble racing next to each other before. So Byron probably saw this as a what the heck, man. But I think at the end of the day, it's just racing. It's just racing, especially in this car right now, as they try to figure out ways to find speed and to differentiate the cars. They're really close to each other. And so these incidents are going to happen. So with that said, that's my thoughts on Darlington. And let's get to business this week. Joining us now is Ken Martin. He is the Senior Manager of Archive Development for NASCAR. Uh, appreciate you doing this. Sure, yeah. So I have been fascinated with this story for a long time, and I just decided to, to quelch my own fascination that I would just do a story so I could find out as much about it as I could. So yeah, just tell me, who was L.W. Wright that, that we know? <clears throat> well... You know, the, the, it, it is as much legend as it is facts. And, and, you know, sadly, we have very few facts, but L.W. Wright was a race driver who entered uh, a race at Talladega, Alabama in, uh, in 1982. We really don't know much about his racing credentials. He said that he had 
raced in a number of the lower level NASCAR series, which back in the day uh, may have been the, what we would call the Bush series or about uh, just prior to that, it was the late model sportsman series. But, <clears throat> you know, he said that he had, but really no one fact checked his, his information. Um, I think the first time he kind of shows up on the radar, um, he, he announces, uh, he goes to uh, Sterling Marlin, who, uh, whose father, uh, Cuckoo, was a famous racer, raced in Cup, and he went to Sterling to buy a car. And uh, at that time, Sterling was not the well-known star that he became in later years. He was just a local racer at the at the Nashville uh, fairgrounds track. So uh, 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 L.W. went to Sterling to purchase the car, and kind of part of the deal was that Sterling would help him out, sort of be a crew chief, or or you know I think L.W. wanted to use Sterling as sort of here's my gravitas, here's my Here's proof that I'm a racer because I'm with Sterling Marlin, and 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 you know Sterling was a was a, you know his family was a racing family, but I don't think he, uh, you know Sterling I think kind of had some uh, questions from the start about what what was LW's background, and I think if I remember correctly he bought the car. For about twenty-one, twenty-three thousand dollars from Sterling, but Sterling wanted uh, at least eighteen thousand in cash because <laughs> Sterling, you know, Sterling had been around the block enough to know. Okay, if I got cash in hand, that's probably what the car was worth, and if I make an extra five thousand later, then that's that's okay. So he approached Sterling about the car and asked Sterling to sort of be a mechanic, crew chief type type guy. <clears throat> and then um, uh, he, uh, LW, talked to some local newspaper reporters in Nashville, and he put out this bogus press release that he had some Nashville stars like uh, T.G. Shepard or Merle Haggard interested in sponsoring the car. Uh, and when that information came out, there's a gentleman named uh, Gary Baker, who was the promoter of the Nashville track, part owner of the Bristol track, and was really, he's he also an attorney. And Gary, uh, you know, was probably, you know, the main figure in Tennessee racing at that time. So, if you were going to race, you kind of knew who Gary Baker was. But when Gary Baker was approached about, uh, you know, T.G. Shepard, Merle Haggard, you know, Gary's like, I've never, I've never heard of this guy, and and it just so happens that I represent T.G. Shepard, and <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, red, red flags went off because. You know, Gary would know if T.G. Shepard had entered into an agreement. But anyway, they, you know, uh, 
there were some questions about this marketing company uh, that was raising some funds for him. Um, whether whether it was a it was a, what was it rocket uh, rocket management? I forget the name. Oh, Space Age Space Age Marketing. Yeah. Yeah, Space Age Marketing was the uh, marketing company, and uh, and they went about trying to sell sponsorship for uh, for LW, but you know LW, you know shows up at uh, at Talladega, and you know his name is on the entry list, and from what I've read, from what I understand, you know Sterling immediately was like this guy doesn't know his way around a racetrack. You know, they're, they're, they're just certain certain cues that you get of, you know, oh, this car is loud, you know, or, or you know, something like that that makes you question it. But, I, you know, again, that's just sort of a dramatization. But Sterling sort of recognized that he didn't have, have much experience around a racetrack. But still, LW went out in practice and, you know, as big and great as Talladega is, it's not the hardest track to get around. I mean, it's big. It's big. There's, there's different lanes and things. So even a person with very little experience can run a lap or two around there. But then in practice, LW uh, crashed the car. Uh, they made enough repairs for him to be able to start the race. He, he started the race, and within, within just a couple of laps, he was being lapped by the leader. You know, he was that slow that, that within a couple of laps, he was being lapped. And uh, NASCAR black flagged him, uh, which sent him to the, because they felt like he was a, a danger on the track. And so they black flagged him. He went to the garage. And, and, you know, they're mixed reports, and I'm not sure. He went to the garage area and left the track and left his car behind, you know, just, you know, sort of like, I'm going to escape from this place before I'm found out of what's going on. Uh, but, you know, but other reports said, no, you know, the car was brought back to Nashville. But I'm sure that Sterling looked at it as a way to, you know, he, he wanted to keep the car and, and recoup it. But really, after that, you know, he had run up a tire bill with Goodyear for his tires for the car. He had, he had paid for his garage uh, passes for him and his crew with a check that bounced. And, and you know, and it was, it was pretty clear that, you know, this was just some scheme some some bogus guy maybe he was uh, having a bar bet you know maybe he said you know I bet I can go out in Talladega and race so um you know from that point on you know I, I'm I'm told that like Goodyear uh was gonna go after him and hired a detective to try to find him to cover the check and then NASCAR you know, also was owed money, but I think they just kind of said, you know, we've given this guy enough publicity as it is. We we don't need to, you know, we don't need to 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 pursue this while it was a fair amount of money. It wasn't 
you know, it wasn't an insane amount of money. And, you know, maybe they felt like, you know, let's walk away from it, wash your hands of it, of him. So really he, he was like a ghost. He disappeared into the mist, um, you know, was not heard from again. Um, several journalists have done investigative uh, uh, research and, and contacted him, uh, contacted, you know, people that would have known him. I know that uh, we at NASCAR Productions uh, contacted Gary Baker and talked to Gary about about LW and you know and and Gary is you know says this is like a Hollywood script this is like you know one of those Netflix series that you see of some con man showing up doing this great ruse and then disappearing um, we also talked to uh, Larry Woody who was like the leading motorsports journalist in Tennessee at the time, and they're in Nashville. And Larry is one of the few guys that actually talked to LW. You know, he questioned LW about, you know, where's Merle Haggard? I thought you said he was going to be here. You know what? You know, and and he said that uh, LW just kind of brushed him off, and you know, but Larry said there was nothing distinctive about him there was nothing memorable about about him you know he was just like one guy among dozens of guys in the garage area you know at Talladega that day but one thing we have to remember and, and it is 1982 communications are not like we have today and and even for me I, I used to do a radio show in Virginia um, about local racing results and, try, and, and trying to call all of these local tracks and get their results and things for this radio show. And it was a matter of, you know, phone call after phone call and late at night and early in the morning, just trying to gather the results. So there wasn't one central clearinghouse like a racing reference or whatever that we could go to and find results. And so, you know, LW could say, hey, you know, I'm the king of Spain. And, and we would go, well, if he says so, you know, we have to believe it. But, but one other interesting thing that I found and it, it is that in NASCAR history, we've had about 3,000 drivers race in the Cup Series. And of those 3,000, about a thousand of them only made one start. They only ran in one race and then they disappeared or went back to their local racing or went on to race in another series. So, you know, they're, they're uh, kind of a revolving door of people coming and going, especially, you know, in the early years up until like the mid eighties. And, uh, the race that LW was in was, was at Talladega and ESPN uh, broadcast the race and uh, uh, Bob Jenkins made mention of LW early in the broadcast. Uh, Larry Newber, who was on the broadcast, made mention of him. Um, uh, Mike Joy was doing uh, MRN radio and during row assignments mentioned LW. 
So, you know, they knew he was there, but really at that point, you know, uh, there were a lot of people that came and went, uh, but LW is certainly one of the most uh, intriguing, mysterious stories that, that NASCAR has had. And, and the fact that he could just disappear and, and as I said, some credible journalists, some credible uh, newspapers ha have, have tried to find out more uh, information about him. And, uh, you know, uh, was that his real name? Was he using an assumed name or an alias? Or, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's funny, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sorry to give you such a long run on. No, answer. it's okay. I I, I, <laughs> well, you touched on some, you touched something on there that I wanted to ask you about. Okay. I think people today really understand how different it was back then. I mean, basically back then, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could just show up with a check for your license and 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 say you were a driver and, and you know pay your license fee, and they would pretty much let you out there. Yeah, that they would they would give you the opportunity to prove are you a competitor or not and 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 you know if you if you applied to NASCAR for a license uh, it was a, a you know free work space i mean you didn't have to join a union you didn't have to join a club you you could apply for your NASCAR license and it would be granted and then you know also you could apply for you know, if you're going to pay, I'm going to pay for garage passes for me and four or five members of my team to come in to work on the car. So, so yeah, if you, if you had a check, uh, you could do it. Sadly, LW's check <laughs> bounced, but again, 1982, there was no electronic tracking of checks and things like that. And, and, you know, there, there were, there were times that you know you'd write a check on Friday and you'd hope you'd win enough racing on Saturday and Sunday to deposit it in the bank on Monday to cover that check. So you know that that was just the the, the way it was back then. And you know again now you know you can go to McDonald's and your charge account is showing you know within instant of when you pay that you've you've just been through the drive through. But uh, that wasn't the way it was in 1982. And as I said, it was hard because there were dozens and dozens of racetracks all over the country. Some were NASCAR sanctioned, some were outlaw tracks, you know, and, but, but if you came up and said, you know, I'm, I'm a racer and I race at Kingsport, Tennessee, and I've won seven feature races, there was no real way to verify it unless you call the racetrack at Kingsport and they might go, you know, we've never, we've never heard of this guy, but also, you know, the racing community kind of self-policed itself. And I think that, uh, you know, again, uh, Sterling was like, this guy's not qualified to, to be out here, but, you know, we're going to see it through. But I think, you know, LW realized, you know, running a couple of practice laps is one thing, but being on the track with 40 other guys, 
you know, is a, is a pretty scary, uh, pretty scary thing. It's uh, I'm sure the guys sitting at the bar were were laughing, saying, you know, yeah, yeah, you showed them at Talladega, yeah, you ran eight laps, and <laughs> yeah. Well, I you mentioned this a little bit, and and when I talked to Ryan McGee from ESPN about this, he kind of said the same thing. Do you think what makes this so interesting? Because he mentioned, you mentioned, guys come and go in and out of the sport all the time. Even today, there, there are teams that come, try to run, can't keep the funding up, whatever. Yeah. Makes this story more intriguing to people is the trail he left behind, the fact that he was not just a racer, but also kind of a, a, a criminal, criminal at the same time. Yeah, that's, I think that's part of it, of, you know, that, that sometimes people try to get into the sport just out of pure love for the sport, or desire, or, or, you know, they, they, they don't get into it thinking that this is a get rich scheme, you know, but it seems like that that was LW's uh, motive was to get, try to get rich, try to, try to make some money. I mean, you know, he was, he was like a card shark or a flim flam man, and he really, he didn't have any racing background that we know of. And he just sort of walked in, thought, hey, I'm going to walk in, collect the money, and, and people will never hear from me again. So, yeah, I think, like you said, the criminal kind of element of it is what makes it so intriguing. And the fact that, you know, there were bounce checks and there were investigations and, uh, you know, I don't think there's any way uh, things like that could happen today with all of the background checks and all of the different things that go on. But in that era, it was possible. And, uh, you know, whether LW went on to become a career criminal, uh, you know, or, or go from town to town making unscrupulous deals, you know, that's, that's certainly, you know, that's certainly possible. But, um, you know, I, I think we all would like to know, uh, you know, what was going on in his mind? What, what did he really hope to accomplish by, by, doing, by doing this? And, uh, and the fact that he showed up at NASCAR's fastest track, you know, what, what makes you think that if you can drive on the interstate at 60 or 70, that you can go to Talladega and run 200, you know, and, and, and this, and it was, it, that was part of the ironic thing of uh, this race at Talladega, Benny Parsons qualified on the pole at over 200 miles an hour. It was the first time that an official NASCAR qualifying lap had been made at over 200 miles an hour. So, this this was no game this was you know this was real racing and you know and 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 benny out there running 200 miles an hour and you know it's like you driving on the interstate or something and you know these cars are zipping by you and i'm sure lw was totally intimidated by it which which he should have been joining us now is alex bowman driver of number 48 chevy for hendrick motorsports thanks for joining us yeah, thank you for having me. So we've come off a stretch of some um, interesting, unique race tracks. Um, it's been kind of uh, 
an interesting run just because it seems like there's been some some unexpected things come out of this last group of short tracks slash um, dirt tracks slash Talladega, which is always a wild card. How do you feel like the 48 team has kind of uh, weathered through this uh, run of tracks? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've had a good year so far. Um, you know, I think really our worst performance of the year has been Martinsville, which was a big shock to us just with how well we've run there in the past. And um, we unloaded and from the time we unloaded, we knew we we weren't very good and um, weren't, you know, while we have practice, we can't really change much uh, during or after practice. So we're kind of, we had what we had and it didn't work for us. And uh, going back, hopefully we're, we're a little better, but other than that, we've been pretty strong everywhere we've gone. Um, you know, it has been an interesting batch of racetracks. How hard is it to, I know you had no practice for two years, but how hard is it to adjust to just 20 minutes of practice? I mean, especially with a new car, when you're trying to figure out so much new information, how difficult is that? It's definitely difficult. I almost think it's a little bit more frustrating sometimes than it was to have no practice. Like, when we had no practice and we, if we just missed it, you know, you, you just missed it. And like, you have three and a half hours of a race to figure it out and hopefully you can get it closer or uh, play some strategy to get it right and move on from there. And when you have practice, like at Bartonsville, we practice and we're like, Oh, we're not very good. Like we're, we're really not allowed to change anything. We're, we're still not going to be very good tomorrow. <laughs> um, and you kind of have all night to, sit on it and all day the next day and and then you race and you try to make it better and you you do all these things to to try to improve the race car and and you still struggle just kind of with the box that you're in it's it's a bit frustrating so <laughs> um you know i feel like i have probably some of the smartest people in the garage working on my race cars and um i'm happy for that because it's uh it takes some really smart people to to try to get them close when we unload a lot of people always say that, you know, if you get a win early, you can kind of relax. So, and then you're, you're in the playoffs and that kind of stuff. But I'm curious, you got a win early, but then you see now Williams got another win and Ross has a second win. Do you start to get antsy when people start building up multiple wins? Now I got to get a second win. Uh, yes and no. You always want to win more races. And um, I don't want that because anybody else has more wins. I just want to go win more races and take more trophies home. So um you know, I think I definitely can't relax through the summer. If I'm not consistent through the summer, keyboard warriors are going to rip me apart on Twitter all summer long. So I got to be as consistent as possible. That's the, the number one goal of the year. And um, it's been a consistent start to the year. So hopefully we can carry that over throughout the, the course of the season and be as prepared as possible when, when the summer or when the playoffs start. That's interesting you bring that up because I know last year you said your team's biggest issue was was the inconsistency is that really been the focus this year yeah but it was a focus last year too <laughs> um you know you never want to be inconsistent and last year it seemed like we would either win or finish last and and this year you know we've, we're just having good solid days and um you know obviously vegas being able to capitalize on a green white checkered at the end and coda we almost got a second win there on the last lap as well so uh trying our best to carry that consistency all year and, and really the biggest thing is we just want to be the best we can be each and every week so doing everything that I can to make that happen and, and I know my race team's doing the same. I'm just curious you 
have the most wins other than Kyle Larson over the last year, but you're not really the guy that people talk about in that, in that range and that suspect. Do you like being a little bit under the radar or would you rather, you know, people mention you where you should be mentioned in the same breath as Kyle Larson? Uh, I'm all for it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm definitely shy and keep to myself. So not being exactly the most popular guy who's swarmed with people all the time and, and all that is, uh, is all good with me. Cause I would just be super uncomfortable all the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, I want to be more consistent and I want to win more races and contend for championships like Kyle did last year. And hopefully we can make that happen, but, um, you know, I just want to be me and do my own thing and get to, go race my sprint car during the week and kind of just do uh, do all the things that I enjoy doing. Do you think it's good that in Hendrick Motorsports, there's a range of different personalities of guys? I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, Chase, who's like the most popular driver and, and Kyle. And then there's you and William that seem to be a little bit more, you know, laid back and chill and, and that kind of stuff. Is it good for you guys that you're all a little bit different? Yeah, we're, we're definitely all really different. You know, William likes Legos and makes candles and uh, I work on race cars and hang out with my dogs and uh, Kyle races like 300 times a year and then Chase is the most popular guy on the planet so um, <laughs> it's definitely a, a range of, of personalities and we all bring something different to the table so um, I really enjoy hanging out with all my teammates I think we get along great we work together well um, and I, I think we're we're all good for each other so um, enjoy it. I think it's a good group from the top to the bottom here at Hendrick Motorsports. I think we have a really good group and just uh, really happy to be a, a small part of it. So looking ahead this week to Kansas, ah, uh, Kansas, I can hear all the Wizard of Oz jokes now, having grown up not too far from the Speedway on the Missouri side in Kansas City. Trust me, I've heard them all. I've also heard all the jokes about how this is a quote-unquote cookie-cutter mile-and-a-half track, and while it's probably not the most intriguing track design, and it can sometimes lend itself to spread-out racing and lots of cars laps down, I think Kansas is really important this year because it's one of the first, I think it's technically like the second, but one of the early mile-and-a-half tracks, intermediate tracks on the schedule this year. I think it's going to be really important as far as finding out which teams are really going to be competitive through the season right mile and a half tracks even though we've reduced the number of them greatly it's still the most popular kind of track that we run the mile and a half to two milers it's a big part of the postseason so we're going to find out this weekend which teams are really contenders and who maybe needs to do some work over the summer so I think this track is really important even though a lot of people are already grumbling and mumbling about how boring the race is going to be let's see let's see what happens you never know right I mean everybody always thought that Martin was going to Martinsville is the greatest track ever and yet this year it's the most boring race I've seen in some time so you never know what's going to happen with these new cars Kansas might surprise you that will do it for me this week we'll see you next week on the back stretch